like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science. My name is Taylor Sparks. I'm the co-host of this, and I'm not joined by Andrew, but I am joined by two wonderful folks today. Uh, why don't you introduce yourselves? I'm Susan Sennett. I'm a professor and head of the Department of Material Science and Engineering at Penn State University. I'm Marlene Silva, and I'm a publisher for the Materials Today Material Sciences team at Elsevier. So you might be wondering, where's Andrew and why are we talking to publishers? Like, what is this episode going to be? We did a recent episode, check it out, number 54, where we were at the TMS meeting and we talked about why or what should you be thinking about when you're going to a conference? And that turned out to be an exciting episode and people liked that, even though it's different than what we typically cover. So we decided to do an extension of that today because we are here at the MRS meeting in fall in Boston. And instead of talking about why you should go to a conference, we're going to talk a little bit about publishing, publishing in materials specifically. And so who better to talk to than a chief editor at Computational Material Science, a publisher, and we're going to talk about the role of publisher, and myself, I'm an associate editor. Uh, so full disclosure, obviously this podcast is sponsored by the wonderful journal Materials Today. We're big fans of them. So if you hear an Elsevier bias, it's because all three of us here work for Elsevier. So we clearly think it's a great place, but we'll try and be even-handed in our discussion today. And so let's get right down to it. So maybe to get started with, for those that aren't familiar, I'm an, I said that I was an associate editor. Susan is a chief, you know, editor-in-chief, and we have a publisher. What is the difference between these roles? You want to kick it off, Marlene? What, what, do, you, what do you do as a publisher, for example? So the publisher role uh, can be seen in many ways. Um, the way I see it is a con someone who is a connector between Elsevier and the journal. Right? A, jur a journal typically belongs, like in this case, Susan's journal, to Elsevier. It's a proprietary title of Elsevier. But there needs to be a connection between the goals Elsevier has as a company and what's happening in the journal. So that's a bit the publisher role, to translate those goals into practical aspects in the journal to make sure the journal is successful while aligning the corporate side and the scientific side. Now, on a daily basis, we talk to the editors, discuss content, strategy, solve operational issues when they come about, uh, but it's mainly making a connection between the scientific world and the publishing house, in this case, Elsevier. Okay. So how does that differ from an editor-in-chief, Susan? Okay, so an editor-in-chief is responsible for the content of the journal. And so my job as editor-in-chief of computational material science is to uh, work with authors, uh, to solicit papers from uh, authors, and also to go through the papers that are submitted to the journal, determine if they're going to go forward to a review through the review process and then distribute them among the associate editors. And Taylor, you're one of the associate That's editors. That's me. I know that job. I can tell you about it. <laughs> I get the papers that have been sort of pre-vetted and they've been sort of uh, categorized as well, right? So I do machine learning, right? And so I get a lot of papers that are touching on that topic. I look through them, do a quality assessment, and then I start thinking, okay, is this something that needs to go out to review? Is it ready to go out to review? Something I do a lot in my field is I look at, you know, is the code there? Is the data there? That's like, Nine out of 10 papers don't have that. So I'm usually sending it back saying it's not quite ready to peer review. 
because I want to make sure that people have the chance to review that part of it as well. Once that's done, it's my role as an associate editor to find reviewers, to invite them and invite and invite and invite until you get the right number, to chase them if they forget to turn their things in. And then when these comments come in to evaluate the comments, make sure they're fair and even handed. Did they actually, are making sure did they read the paper? Did they really try and get to the points? There's no ad hominems in there. Uh, and try and make a judgment eventually as the, through this revision process that goes back and forth on whether or not it's ready to publish. I think that's my role. That's what yes. I've been doing. Yep, that's exactly it. Okay, so Elsevier is a publisher. Right? It's a for-profit company. That's not how all of these work. Some of those are not for-profit. They're community-driven. Um, you want to talk about that? What's the role of a for-profit publisher in 2022? The role of all the publishing houses, or a publisher, if you want to call it, is basically the same. It's the divulgation of science, the dissemination of science. Now, different initiatives do it in different ways. You have companies that are like Elsevier, that are corporations, and you have other associations that do it for different reasons that are not corporate. The goal is always the same, right? To disseminate science, to bring knowledge to a certain readership. The business model of the companies is different. And the more and more I think we're moving forward, the more different models there are, the more combinations of business models there are. Uh, and they all take a certain niche of the publishing world and serve the communities in different ways. So Elsevier is a large publishing house. You work with lots of topics from the medical field to materials, obviously. In what ways is publishing in materials distinct and unique? Materials as a field, and Susan can go into this more deeply than I. I am originally an astrophysicist, so uh -huh. I'm a bit out okay. of my depth here. Uh, materials is by definition multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary. It doesn't happen often when you're talking about publication, scientific publication. I think it is a special case because it brings so many other communities together. So the difference is that you have to, as a publisher or even as a company, handle a materials group of journals in a different way that you would handle a very specific field because it brings a lot of people together that speak different languages, that come from different worlds. People come from physics, from chemistry, from engineering, uh, from computer sciences, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a world that's a little bit different scientifically because it's so complete and so diverse at the same time. That's a bit why it's different. Okay. So materials is a huge field. It is an incredible, I've heard it described as like more broad than it is deep. Um, I've certainly seen that. It makes it hard to find reviewers. I think to myself, what if I was in this super niche field where everyone sort of did the same thing? It'd be really easy to sort of probe that field. But when I get a paper that comes in, sometimes I have to find the person that has that expertise. Because just because you say you study materials, you have a PhD and you're a professor of material science, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to review adequately all papers. If you're a polymers person, you can review polymers papers. And even that needs to get subcategorized. So Susan, how challenging is it to sort of, as a, from a chief editor standpoint, to make sure that your bases are covered with such a broad field? Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges. So typically what I do is spend a lot of time on search engines like Web of Science or Google Scholar or other others, uh, looking at papers, looking at who's publishing what, where, um, and getting a sense for these of these other communities that where perhaps people are using phase field modeling and I don't do phase field, mm -hmm. so I have to become familiar with who who's really working in this area. I also have to work with the associate editors and, and there's often turnover amongst them. You're our first associate editor in machine learning. That's a very important topic, uh, but five years ago, we yeah. weren't seeing papers in this space. So I think 
not only understanding uh, current areas of emphasis in the field, but also evolving as the field evolves. That's a very important part of the job. Okay. So I'm thinking back to myself, my very first paper I published, I'm a new graduate student, year one or two, whatever it was. I was so excited, but I also had no idea what that process entailed. Like I wrote the manuscript, I gave it to my advisor who promptly like said, this is awful. It was like covered in blood red ink and it was awful. We revised and revised and revised. We got it to a point where we felt like it was good. And then I just like gave it to my advisor and off it went. And, you know, a few months later, it comes back and there's comments, right? Somebody had read this and they pointed out problems with our thing and things that we could correct to make it better. And so I, I got cued into the, the revision process, right? Revising it based off of the expert opinion of these anonymous reviewers. And then it goes out and I don't remember if that happened a couple of times, but it, it gets published eventually. But so much of it to me as the student, this all happened like sort of behind closed doors. I didn't realize what was happening there. So help me demystify the process a little bit for people that maybe are in the similar shoes. I think a lot of our audience is undergraduates, first year graduates, second year graduate students. What's this process look like? Yeah, so the process is that you, you write the paper and when you and your co-authors are happy with it, you submit it to the journal and you submit the manuscript and you submit perhaps a figure for the table of contents you submit a justification letter explaining to the editor the importance of your work, and you submit some a list of potential reviewers, people in the field that you feel are qualified and would be able to provide input. As we described earlier, the editors review the paper, determine if it's a good fit for the journal, determine if it's ready to go out for peer review. And then we send it out for comments from the reviewers. And the role of the reviewers is to help the authors. Every critical comment that comes back from a reviewer is really aimed at helping the authors put forward their work in the best possible form. Sometimes reviewers can be a little blunt in their assessment, <laughs> but ultimately that's their job. And sometimes, every once in a while an author will, will um, respond to reviewer comments saying, I think the, the reviewers are so unfair, they just don't get it. And my response is always, well, the reviewers represent the readership. Right. And if one or more of them did not get what you were trying to say, others will not get what you are trying to say. So use this as a teachable moment and use the comments in a constructive fashion to improve your paper and ultimately, it's the desire of the publisher, the editors, and the authors to produce the best possible scientific content for dissemination. So to that last point, that it's the role of this whole process to get the best product out the door, I believe that. And I think most people in this field would agree with that. Let me play devil's advocate. Is peer review really necessary? What's stopping? What, what, what would be the problem if academics or people in industry, whoever wants to publish content, just threw it up on the web and said, here's our findings. So you can do that now. There are sites like Archive where you can put your paper up and people can look at it and provide comments and it's never officially peer reviewed or officially published in a peer reviewed journal. Uh, I think the, the biggest problem is, first of all, there may be very often we, I see submissions reporting findings that I know for a fact have been done before, maybe yeah. 20 years earlier. I remember doing the work myself as a graduate <laughs> student, perhaps. 
Um, and so I think sometimes authors don't realize that the work has already been done and they need to modify their paper accordingly to reflect that. Uh, but more, I think more, a more common scenario is that the reviewers will help the authors by pointing out aspects of the work that isn't clear. So in other words, other people will not be able to reproduce the work if it's unclear, and the authors may not realize this. And more importantly, the, the, the reviewers may identify critical flaws in the research that the authors just didn't catch. And more often than not, the authors will revise the paper to clarify the story, yeah. to add additional data, and all that really helps the final product sparkle in a way it didn't at the beginning. Susan, I have a question for you. Obviously, when it comes time to pick a journal, our first suggestion is materials today and computation material science, obviously. No, but all joking aside, like if you have a new uh, PhD student and they've published some work, or they're ready to publish some work, how do you help them select which journal is the best fit? What do we mean by best fit? And what goes into your decision-making process as, so sort of taking off your editor-in-chief hat for a moment, yeah. how do you make that decision? So that's a question that I think has really, the answer to that has really changed over the course of my career. When I was a graduate student, I would go to the library and I would pick up journals and I would read the tables of contents and I'd go to a Xerox machine and copy the papers I wanted to take back. And obviously, I could only look, physically pick up and look at a few of all the possible journals. Today, I think that where you publish is less important than it used to be because, again, with Google Scholar, Web of Science, and it's other search engines, right? yeah, you can just find everything. I think um, when I make a decision with my students about where to send our papers, we think about the readership of the journal, we think about the scope of the journal, um, we think about the audience that cater that that journal caters to and that's foremost in our minds when we select a journal um you know we try to select journals that will uh, provide a rigorous evaluation and send to good reviewers i think that's the best service that a, a journal can provide to and authors how do you know that just by knowing the editor and sort of past experience or well, word and of mouth the quality or? of the papers that are published okay. in that paper or that journal because if the journal is publishing routinely papers that i think of low are of low quality to me that either says that the scope of the journal is so broad that it includes low quality work or that the review process is not very rigorous okay. because they're publishing papers that i don't think are good quality all right so i I've talked to graduate students sometimes who say, you know, my PI won't let me publish this. I feel like it's ready. They're anxious to get it out the door. Um, what, maybe this dives into a little bit the ethics of authorship, but how do we know when something is ready to be published? Can graduate students publish on their own? How, can they do it without their advisor? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, very strong thoughts. So. Um, it is not ethical for a graduate student to publish without uh, the advisor. Uh, the advisor provides guidance um, and uh, helps control, helps ensure that the quality is good. Also, the advisor has provided, obtained, and provided provides support for the research, support for the student, and the role of the advisor is to ensure that everything's as high quality as possible. 
So forgive any background, by the way. This is exciting to record at the MRS. It's fun to be here in person and doing this, but there is a little bit of background noise. So forgive us for that a little bit. Um, so Susan, you think it's important for quality? You think it's important for ethical because the, the the research was done with supervisor funds, and it was done in a lab that was you know the it's the responsibility of the PI to oversee that lab as well. I, I agree with all of that. What if there is a user facility that the department sort of maintains, right? A, a makerspace, if you will. The students do things on their own time outside of the you know twenty. They're paid twenty hours a week, graduate students, right? They're not. It's not like they belong to the advisor. They're not their indentured servants that have to be there, right? So. I, I'm curious about that. Can they do work on their own and publish without their advisor in those scenarios, do you think? So t technically, yes, they could do that. However, again, I wouldn't advise it. Uh, I think that there's the, remember, everything that you publish will live forever. Okay. And you don't want to have to publish something and then retract it later because even Absolutely. after you retract it, the, the digital footprint remains. So I think it's not in a student's best interest. However, if a student really was enterprising and went off and did something on their own um, without completely independent of their supervisor, I still think they would want to get feedback on their work from, from experienced people uh, before they sent, sent it off. Yeah. I think I had a really good experience with my postdoc advisor, Ram Sushadri, phenomenal guy. Um, it was when I was a postdoc. You have more experience at that point. But I remember him telling me, like, you know, postdoc is about professional training. Like, you should be re striking out on your own. Like, you, people don't want to hire you just because you're a clone and you worked in somebody's group. They want to hire somebody because a PhD first off is supposed to, at that point, you're supposed to think on your own and do things. Postdoc even more so. And he really encouraged us to work that we did with him. We should publish with him. But I should be taking initiative to go and do that. And I think that was just a great advice that I got from him. But you're right publication, you don't want to have to retract it. You certainly want to be asking to make sure that it's good quality. But I think my encouragement for students is to think about their PhD as their own, to think about um, at the end of the day, they're not just a product of what their advisor spat out, that they should be thinking of how they've been improving themselves and taking initiative to learn things on their own as well, whether that leads to publication or not. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, interdisciplinary research. So you, you mentioned earlier about material science is very interdisciplinary and uh, includes a lot of collaboration. As computational, as a computational material scientist, I very often collaborate with experimentalists who are doing synthesis and characterization, data, um, data uh, analytics, and machine learning. And, and so, um, I think uh, what I would encourage students to do is to take advantage of collaborations and really learn a lot from collaborators. I think that's a the better way for a student to broaden their experience um, while keeping the advisor involved. You know, the other thing advisors have to do is we support students and postdocs and then we have to report to whoever gave us the money what that person was yeah. doing and if they're producing a lot of work without us and without acknowledging yeah. that funding that could start to be a problem so i think some balance there is needed and in any case full full uh disclosure and candid conversations between the advisor and the student or the postdoc is really needed key. is really key marlene so much has been said, good and bad, about the almighty impact factor. What is the impact factor? Should we really, is it a useful, is it an important metric? Is it useful? Is it a good metric? Is it the opposite of those things? Tell us about that. 
That's the metric we have. Isn't it? <laughs> it's as good as we've got. Um, and there is also another metric that uh, you can find, for example, on Scopus called SightScore. What's the difference? It's, it's calculated over four years versus two years, like the traditional impact factor. It, it includes also different kinds of... Maybe stepping back, what is the impact factor? So the impact factor is calculated the number of citations divided by the number of articles of a certain journal over a period of time of two years. So when you have an impact factor of a journal 2020, those are the numbers that come from 2019. Okay. They get published in 2020. SiteScore does something very similar, but it does a calculation over three years. And it, it's a bit more inclusive in what kind of articles it considers articles. Okay. Um, now I, it's a discussion that I don't think has an end at this point. Uh, I think it's the metrics we have right now that is recognized by the entire world. If it's the better, if it's the best one, if it should be there, if it shouldn't be there, if it should be important or not, it's a discussion that don't, doesn't have a solution at this point. Um, I think there's more and more universities, there's more and more institutions focusing not only on impact factor in looking at other indicators, but it's very difficult to dissociate impact factor when you are discussing the quality of a publication and the quality of the research. It's also what people are used to so far. So to come to a situation where people will start looking at something else, um, it's not something that's immediate. It will be a process if it happens. Are there other candidates? So you said like there's SciScore, but like, are there any? It, I think the problem here, it's just so hard to be objective and quantitative about how good a finding is. What's good to Susan might be not that interesting to me because I'm in a different field, right? It feels so subjective to me. And so citations are at least one metric. It means people read the paper enough that they felt like they had to point at it. Is there anything else that in the future might be used? I, I think um, some communities really uh, develop opinions about the reputations of various journals. For example, physicists really respect physical review letters. Right. And that is the primary journal for for a, a, a significant fraction of the physics community. In material science, it's not clear to me that we have a single journal that we all f have the need to target for our publications. So I think we have more flexibility and I think different communities will have different thoughts about what journal they feel is the best for them. It's my goal as editor-in-chief of computational material science to convince the computational community that they should consider our journal first. And, and that's also where the role of the editors becomes so important, right? Because when you, you were just mentioning that Oh, it might be good for someone, but not good for someone else. Someone might judge an article in a certain way versus a different way. That's why it's so important that you have a team of editors that support each other and that collaborate and that have different strengths within a team to make sure that the decisions that are made are cohesive. That's where the role becomes also even more important than just the focusing on the content, but also how it's representing the community that the journal is serving. Yeah, we had an example of this. We were making a decision as a journal, and it was so great to get opinions from, what, six or seven of us? And they didn't agree necessarily, and that's a great thing to hear, like, well, why, do, where, when they don't agree, why is that? And to dive into it, it was good. How about this? Susan, what should be in the cover letter? <laughs> I feel like this is a really important thing, and I see great examples and bad ones. I'm curious in your opinion, what should be in the cover letter? So the cover letter should not be a restatement of the abstract. Rather, it should be a succinct 
communication to the editor and to the reviewers of what the focus of your paper and why it's significant. And this is a good place to point out how your paper fits into the context of prior work and fits into the literature and why you feel it's a good fit for this particular journal. Um, we get many submissions that are not at all good fits for our journal. Sure. For example, we get papers on medical advances that I'm sure are wonderful, but they aren't computational material science. Uh, so that's what I feel a cover letter should, sh the content that should be in a cover letter. And it really does help those who read it understand what they're about to read and why, why it's significant. Okay. So maybe there's a question, I'm guessing I'm going to get different experience from the publisher standpoint, from the editor-in-chief, but tell me about misconduct and ethics. When we say ethics or misconduct as it relates to uh, publications, what are we talking about? What are the types of things that you see done wrong and what's the way that we fix those? There's a very long list of things that can go wrong. Uh, so I can tell you the role we play and then maybe Susan can go into a bit of what she comes across. So for a publisher, we're often the first point of contact when something is not okay. So it's usually someone else, often a reviewer, often someone who has read the article online that notice there's something that's not correct. For example, uh, an author that should have been should have been mentioned in the paper and is not. The other way around, someone that has been placed as an author that shouldn't be there. Uh, sometimes research that has been conducted by someone else who can show they have conducted it, but it has all of a sudden been published by another person or a group of people. Now, th those informations come to us through the, very typically the journal email that people find on the journal homepage, end up in the publisher, the publisher forwards that to the editor-in-chief, the executive editors, um, and at that point, the editors have to start an investigation. Because it's on the content of the journal, any scientific content, it's, a, it's a, whether we move forward or not with what's going to happen to that paper and the investigation needs to be done by the editors because it concerns the scientific content. So the role of the publisher here is to always support the decision of the editor. And Susan for sure handles quite a few of these in her role. Uh, so, and often this can lead to a retraction of an article, to a corrigendum of an art that you add to an article. Um, but our role is to inform and support a decision that is made from an operational perspective. So once a decision is made, we implement that. Okay. So I'm curious to learn more about retraction and corrigendum, I think you said. Corrigendums. Um, corrigendum. Yeah. I don't know that word. I'm assuming it means like, well, I, I'm can you want to elaborate on that a little bit? A correction to something that is not all right. So often, for example, a caption of a picture that is noticed that there's something not all right in the caption. Often the authors themselves noticed it afterwards. Oh, there's a mistake. I, I, I mislabeled the alloy, for example. Materials uh, happens okay. often. So we put in a little note that we call a corrigendum that and corrects. This gets published separately, right? It gets published separately, but when you go and look at it, it links to the article. Okay. So they always come in together. They don't exist in a separate world they exist together uh, digitally. Are these common? I've never published one of these. I don't hope I never have to. Happens quite a lot. Are they quite common, huh? Okay. Um, all right, so that's one type of thing that could go wrong. Somebody could be viewing this and say, oh gosh, this got published and there's a problem and it needs to be corrected. There's retractions. These are exciting, right? We hear about these in the news sometimes. High profile ones or not so high profile. Sometimes we hear about hundreds at a time all of a sudden getting retracted and you wonder what on earth was going on in the publication process that a bunch of these all got pulled at the same time. Um, so there's retractions. 
Um, Susan, what sort of things cause a paper to be retracted or where does ethics come in in the complaints that you see? So the most common ethical issue I deal with is plagiarism, often self-plagiarism. Uh, I think that some authors believe that if they cut and paste paragraphs from one paper to another, it's okay as long as it's in the introduction and the methods sections. But in fact, that's not okay. Uh, it's never okay to cut and paste entire paragraphs or sections, even if it's from your own work. Um, of course, there are some exceptions. For example, if you're describing an, an experimental process or a computational equation or model, you may reproduce some of the wording, but it shouldn't be many paragraphs at a time. Um, and uh, so that's by far the most common. We do have uh, computational tools that will go and compare the submitted text to existing text, and it flags us for us, and it's very easy to determine when whole sections have been cut and paste. Uh, I have had to conduct several investigations due to complaints of ethics violations. Most of those have dealt with plagiarism of other people's work that was published in, in, in the journal, Computational Material Science, and this has led to retractions and in investigations followed by retractions. Uh, and in some cases, allegations are made that papers were published with authors who don't exist. That also leads to investigations. I had one instance where two papers were published that were identical, uh, one in my journal, one in another journal. They were completely uh, identical, but the authors were completely different. And over the course of my investigation, both uh, sets of authors in two distinct universities supported their claim by submitting master's theses that were identical from two different students. <laughs> so How did you get to the bottom of that one? Um, yeah. Like somebody's got to fess up and be like, all right, it wasn't me. So yeah, uh, the, the, they're, they're, the, the investigations can uncover deeper yeah. problems uh, that, that are ethical problems. And in, in one memorable instance, uh, an author published the same content in multiple journals, multiple articles that were exactly the same, uh, but the earliest versions were published um, maybe uh, 50 years ago before we had the tools to uh, identify uh, plagiarism. Because it's got to be machine readable, essentially, for exactly. to implement those things. Yeah. But, Scummy. Um, That's too yeah, bad. In, in each case, the, the great thing is Elsevier has a very clear guide for editors. And so I follow that guide. I use the, I, I follow it very exactly uh, to ensure that the, the investigation is followed um, follows pro best practices and follows proper procedures so that we can arrive at a fair and equitable outcome. I, when I was a young faculty, I had an instance where I felt like my work had been rejected and then they had published my exact work and, you know, I won't get into it. But at the time, I was really ticked about this and I went down the whole process. I contacted the editor, we went to the publisher, it escalated as far as I could escalate it and in the end it didn't work out and I got good advice from my postdoc advisor because I was like losing sleep over this. I was so mad about it. And his advice is just like, just let it go. Like you're going to publish hundreds of papers over the course of your career. He's like, they might have screwed you over on this. Like 
you're still like we were able to publish our paper. It just wasn't first, right? And somebody else, in my view, had done us wrong by rejecting it and publishing a few months ahead of us. And his perspective to me was just like, it's not as big of a deal as maybe you think it is, was helpful for me. I don't know if that's helpful for everybody that's going through this. It certainly didn't feel like it at the moment. But with hindsight now, it's been seven or eight years now, um, it, it is to the point where it's like, yeah, it's not the end of the world. Editors and the editorial process is not going to get it perfectly right every single time. And I just, uh, I, I, at least personally speaking, I'm okay with that. I realize that it's going to get it right far more often than it's going to get it wrong. And it's not worth losing that much sleep over personally, I thought. Well, I, I think it's important to recognize that ultimately individuals in science and engineering are evaluated by the sum total of their output. And so yeah. if you're, and you're, Taylor, you're an example of someone whose output speaks for itself. It's very high quality. You've got a wonderful body of work. Yeah. And so I think that, um, you know, anybody who, you know, plagiarized your ideas, uh, they would have to keep doing that in order to have a similar <laughs> high quality body of work. Yeah, I think it's harder when you're, uh, I imagine a grad student facing this. They've got like two, three papers. And if one of them feels like they got ripped, oh, that's painful. It just gets easier with time and perspective. It's like, yeah, it's one. It's whatever. Yeah, but in, re in retrospect, yes. But I think it's also, and most of your audience might be uh, graduate students and undergraduates. So I think it's also important to mention that letting the journals know and the editors know is also important. Yeah, there so are often things that are discovered in the investigations, like Susan mentioned, that would never be uncovered if people hadn't raised the issue. And sometimes there are very serious issues that are found out. Uh, so it's also important to raise, if the problem arises, please raise it. And to follow the right channels, well. right? I think Susan mentioned this, like yeah. she has a very, very specific set of guidelines to yep. follow. Um, if you feel that you have observed misconduct, like you should follow those guidelines as well. Look them up. Yep. Every one of these journals, I think, I'm sure Elsevier is a member of COPE and yep. most of them yes. all are. Yes, they, um, are. they have a very specific set of guidelines that you can sort of sh look to and... Uh, so don't don't just shoot off at the hip and email somebody say you did this terrible thing like follow the right channels and don't send that email probably in the first place like talk to your advisor <laughs> get a get a cool intermediate party to look at this and let cooler heads prevail probably you get your reviews back and you disagree with the reviewer what do you do so that happens quite frequently and I think the thing to keep in mind is that the reviewer's intent was to help you improve the paper. So if if the reviewer misunderstood something completely, the way you should take that, and you disagree with, with the comment, the way to take that is, oh, it's on me. I did not make things clear enough. Let me look at that part of the paper. Let me try to improve it so it's crystal clear. And let me respond respectfully to the comment. Thank the reviewer for making pointing out to me that i did not write this as well as it could be written if 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 the reviewer disagrees with the science uh and uh it's a scientific disagreement rather than a presentation disagreement that's okay too uh always always respond respectfully recognize that the reviewer wrote the comments to help you um and not to get you or cause you problems uh, and so respond you can say it's it's perfectly okay to say i respectfully disagree mm -hmm. and here's why yep. 
And I've been, you know, I've seen instances, I've both been on the adjudicating end of it where two reviews disagreed and they both made pretty good points. One said publish, one said don't publish. And so somebody contacted me and said, hey, would you take a look at this as a third party and tell me what you think? I've been there and I've been on the other end as well. And one of my papers where there's been pros and cons and then the editor made a decision. So it happens more often than not. I'd say it's not, it's definitely not all the case, always the case that all the reviewers are saying yes, publish or no, don't publish. You can have a mixed opinions and I think that's okay. Um, I think that peer review is important. I think it does some good. But I definitely don't think it's the whole story. I don't think that relying on two, three, four, five reviewers to perfectly check all the science that something is ever going to get it there. It does make it better, but ultimately you're gonna publish this and the community's gonna take a look at it. They're gonna discuss it and then they're gonna debate it and they might contact, you might see it at conferences coming up. Like it's gonna get out there regardless. Their peer review process makes it a little bit better, but doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna be ironclad, I think. There still might be people that disagree with it and or see it in different ways. Uh, question for you, Marlene. Is the future double blind reviews? Why or why not? <laughs> Um, well, maybe what, what do we mean by double blind first off? So, so the majority of journals are what we call single blind. That means that the reviewers can see who the authors of the paper are, but the authors, when they get their reviews back, are not aware of who has reviewed. They know who the editors are, but they cannot see the reviewers. Double blind takes this to a next level, which is that the reviewers can also not see who the authors are. Okay. So if, if the future is leading there, um, my personal opinion as a former scientist, I wish it will. I'm not sure it will be very fast. Um, and it's again, a lot of it has to do with the history of how people publish. Um, and it's hard to change some of the historical aspects of publishing a scientific article. Um, there are, if you look at journals that are more traditional, the concept of changing the peer review to double blind is not always welcomed, both by the editorial team, but also by the community, by the readership. Uh, if you have, there's different communities, journals that are a bit younger, that have been set up in the last maybe eight, six years, where both the readership and the editorial teams are a bit more looking towards that side. So it's a question of experimenting, I think, at this point. Um, different communities have different sensitivities to uh -huh. the issue. Um, I, I was an astrophysicist. I published in physics, okay. nuclear physics, when I was doing my PhD. I would, I would have thought as a scientist that would be wonderful. <laughs> uh, there's also the other side to be seen, right? There's often um, people who review very often who mention that knowing who the author is is helpful because often they know the history. They know the body of work. They know what's come before. They often know where the research is going. So that is helpful for them to place the article in a setting that is a bit more historical uh, in terms of context. I think it will be happening more and more often as we move forward. Um, I'm not so sure it will take over as a concept. I think we will come to a moment that we'll have a mix of double blind journals and single blind journals. Uh, and each journal and each community will find what's the most fitting for them. What do you think on this, Susan? You forward against it? Are there pros, cons that we haven't brought up? There are pros and cons. Uh, I think that one of the one of the pros of double-blind reviewing is it helps remove bias on the part of the reviewers. And it's there. And it's like there. Studies have shown this over yeah. and over. Yeah. So I think that papers from lesser-known groups or institutions 
uh, will um, the bias against them will be removed. A bias for a paper from a high-quality institution or group will also it levels levels everything out. However, I, I've reviewed papers uh, in a double-blind environment for other journals, and it's really not possible at this time for it to really be double-blind because reading the methods section and looking mm -hmm. at the references, it was very easy, easy to determine. And people might game that. They might intentionally... Well, in this case, I was able to... Actually, what I did was I copied some of the text from the paper into a search engine, and I found <laughs> other papers by these by the oh, same dear. group. Um, in fact, the abstract appeared in a it, almost word per in a, in, a, in a conference abstract, oh, and the okay. authors were right there. So it's it's actually quite challenging yeah. to really have a review be double blind. So I I see pros and cons. I I do think that understanding the knowledge of the group in terms of the methodology they're using or the equipment they're using, the facilities they're using, all of this is very helpful in evaluating the work. Who should people put as reviewers? I, I want to say something first about this because now that I'm a section editor and I see who people put, I'm like, oh, you guys are putting all these superstars who I know are not going to accept this review assignment. They're, you know, the biggest names in the field are often the busiest people and the ones who have the least um, incentive structures not in place for them to want to spend a lot of time reviewing. Now, let's change the incentive structure, sure, but if that doesn't happen right away, then you listing the top names in the field doesn't necessarily help me find a, a, a better reviewer for you. So who should be people, who should people be putting as the reviewers? They should be putting their, essentially their peers, I think, and um, the people that they want to read the, their paper. Um, I agree with you completely, Taylor. Not, uh, they shouldn't just be naming the big names in the field, but people they know who they know will read their work. They should not put their PhD advisor, their postdoc advisor, their you know close close personal friends, their close collaborators. Any way to define that? When we say close friends, well, I think someone who would be biased, someone who would not provide an objective evaluation. Uh, and there are different rules. You can find rules about bias that funding agencies have, for example, uh, and that can be a guide. Sometimes an author may genuinely feel that someone is unbiased when when they're asked to provide a review they'll respond and say you know I feel I'm biased this is a per, per, personal friend of mine I don't feel I can provide an unbiased review and I always thank them for for letting me know uh, some people respond and say I'm a collaborator I don't feel I can provide yeah, an objective work, yeah, yeah I'm part of this work I can't be objective uh, so I think you, you want people who can be objective because, again, the role of the review is not to rubber stamp your work. It's to provide you critical feedback so you can ensure that your work is best quality. So who, who can do that? Who actually knows, is familiar with what you're doing, who can really provide that objective critical feedback? That, those are the folks who should be your reviewers. If you review a paper, is it okay to tell them afterwards, after it's published, hey, I was the reviewer on this? 
I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I think if a reviewer wants to approach an author mm -hmm. and say, hey, I was, the, I was one of the reviewers, that's fine. As an editor, I will never break that confidentiality. Right. Right. I have had authors write to me in anger and say, these reviewers don't know what the heck they're talking about. <laughs> and I, I typically respond and say, the reviewers are experts in the field. Yeah. I mean, I can't say more than that, but I re try to reassure them that I, that these are experts in the field and they are providing their expert opinion. Yeah. Um, okay, question for you, Marlene. There's been a revolution of, with open access journals. They're propping up like weeds in my garden. They're just absolutely <laughs> everywhere. Are they weeds or are these like something that we should nourish into something that we want? Uh, it, it, it seems to be the direction that the scientific publication world is moving in. Uh, a lot of it has to do with funding, uh, different funding bodies, uh, now mandate that in order to publish work related to a certain funding, the work has to be published open access. Why, why would they want that? The ex mainly the exposure of the work and the fact that it will be available for everyone. Yeah, it's taxpayer, in many cases, funded research. In, in the, the case of Europe, very often, the United, very often in Europe, the European Union sponsored. Yeah. So there's a point there to be made also that different countries should be able to have access, people yeah. that unfortunately have access through a university, for example. Um, it is a direction where it is going at this moment. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to change. I think it's going to keep moving in that direction. And I think the effort that's being made both by people who are publishing and also by the publishers who are publishing the works is to find a balance to make sure that everyone has a place they can go to publish. Not everyone is pro-open access, not everyone is uh, likes the idea, but a lot of people do. A lot of people need to do it because of the funding or out of principle, out of their own values. So there, we need to make sure as a publishing company, not only Elsevier but all of them, that we have space for everyone and that there is different options for everyone. Uh, traditionally, the, the Elsevier journals are what we call hybrid journals, so people yeah. can publish both uh, subscription or open access. Uh, there are now a lot more journals that are, are only open access, what we call gold open access, but there has to be a house for everyone. There has to be options for everyone and for every institution, and that's the most important aspect. So, okay, final question for you, Susan. What do people do that are in industry where they can't publish due to proprietary reasons or just industry policy, are there options for industry participants? I think industry participants can participate as reviewers, for sure. Uh, I think they like to do that. Um, um, I think that they can also work with their organizations to see if there's any aspect of their research or their work that can be published in some form. Uh, it, it's difficult, and it varies by industry, So, I, but I, I welcome a participation from industry folks in evaluating papers and providing comments as reviewers. I totally agree with that. They have great perspective on things. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for jumping in. Uh, 
I hope that uh, people get a lot out of this. If you have additional questions, feel free to reach out to us. We are easy to get a hold of. You can find us on Instagram at materialism.podcast. Uh, you can reach us on email. Send us materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you know how to get a hold of us. We uh, thank you for listening. If you haven't given us a review, we would love it if you would. Uh, you can find us on every platform. Leave us a review. That helps us uh, get greater exposure. And special thanks to Materials Today. I think it's a great journal. I think Elsevier's been a great publisher. It's been fun to work with them. I think my colleagues here would agree that it's been a good uh, publisher, and I think that they're playing an important role in the materials and other communities. Um, so special thanks to everybody uh, that for listening today, and we'll catch you on the next episode. The adventures of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.